This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 10th, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. The First Amendment is under increasing attack by zealous prosecutors using vague language in the Patriot Act. At a Cato Policy Forum held recently, American Civil Liberties Union President Susan Herman detailed a few recent cases. So here's the chief frame, it seems to me. There, there are a number of different you know, um, assumptions that I want to look at. And the first one, I think, which was uh, the assumption underlying the Patriot Act, as well as Guantanamo and a lot of other things that we were doing, is very much related to what David was talking about, about risk. And I think the most extreme version of this was Vice President Cheney's talking about the 1% doctrine. Yeah, if there's a 1% chance that there are weapons of mass destruction out there, we have to act as if it's true, because what if it's not? We're taking a risk that we won't be safe. So it seems to me that the theme of the Patriot Act was, let's create dragnets. Let's give the government all of these enhanced powers, because we want to reduce the risk that there might be a terrorist out there that we wouldn't be able to catch because the government didn't have enough power. So where David started us is that there are all these surveillance dragnets in the Patriot Act. And those, I think, are actually the, the things that, uh, the aspects of the Patriot Act that most Americans are most familiar with. We heard the librarians talk about the national security letters and the library provision and all of the ways in which the Patriot Act makes it easier for the government to find out more about all of us without going through the kind of procedural protections that the Fourth Amendment would otherwise provide um, in terms of both having some sort of predicate, as David says, for action, you know, some reason to suspect somebody, a good reason to search or to seize, and then also some sort of judicial review, having the opinion of a neutral third party that really, in fact, there is a good enough reason. So when you think of the metaphor of the dragnet, yes, indeed, we're giving the, the government this very broad power now to find out more about all of us to just make it much easier. And the idea is, well, in a maybe, the government is going to discover some information that will enable us to catch a terrorist that we might not otherwise have caught. But when you think about the metaphor of the dragnet, it is also at the same time necessarily true that you're going to be catching the unintended. That's the very nature of dragnets. You troll too far. You're going to catch innocent people, and you're going to end up doing harm. So the genesis of my book, you know, my opening anecdote, was I was having uh, dinner one night and sitting next to a woman who was not an ACLU member, as I think you'll gather in a minute. So she said, you know, speak to the person to the left of you. She said, so tell me what the ACLU is doing these days. Pause. But don't tell me about that Guantanamo stuff. She said, I'm so sick of hearing about that. She said, why should I care about them when they're not even Americans? So, you know, I had some answers to that, and I actually tried, but, you know, she kept waving me off, and she kept saying, you know, all this had just had nothing to do with her. So it seems to me that that's assumption number two, you know, from the fall of 2001. Assumption number one, we have to give the government lots of powers, because what if you know, they couldn't have caught a terrorist unless they had this particular power? Assumption number two, this isn't going to affect ordinary Americans. It won't affect innocent people. Why should I worry if I'm not a terrorist? Well, you know, on page one of my book, I make a whole list of the reasons why I think ordinary Americans do need to worry. And my examples come not only from surveillance, but from a lot of other parts of the Patriot Act and also other powers that the government had enhanced in the fall of 2001. Um, so one of the first things that I want to talk about, you know, in terms of, you know, David was talking about the central metaphor here, the another thing we heard in the fall of 2001 is, well, you have to give up some liberty in order to be safe. Okay, so 
that is assuming that we have a balance going on here, which of course in some sense we always do. We're always talking about the risk of, you know, to our safety as compared to the risk to our rights. But um, I think that most people are really not aware of the costs to our liberties and the costs to ordinary Americans. So let me start with the most dramatic examples. These are things that have not happened to very many people, but when they've happened, they're devastating. And it seems to me that all the dragnet thinking in the Patriot Act, not just the surveillance provisions, but the expansions of criminal law, uh, deprivations of due process, you're just doing without due process in, in various ways, really invite arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. And as David is saying, contribute to inaccurate law enforcement because we're just too willing to let down the barriers. So David has already talked to you about one you know, well-known victim of mistake, um, Brendan Mayfield. Yeah, and as David was saying, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was used against Brandon Mayfield, which is curious because he's an American citizen. So that's a whole story. One kind of thing the Patriot Act does is it takes the foreign intelligence gathering mechanisms that were designed to enable us to know what the Soviet embassy was up to during the Cold War and more and more applies them to American citizens. So that's one kind of incursion. But let me tell you, since David has talked a little about that case, and I think that's also a kind of well-known case, about somebody else who may not be as familiar to you. Uh, this is somebody who is not himself an American citizen. He was an exchange student from Saudi Arabia. His name is Samuel Hussein. And he was prosecuted while he was attending the University of Idaho as a graduate student in computer studies. He was prosecuted for providing material support to terrorism. Now, exactly what he was charged with kept fluctuating. What happened in this case was that the FBI concluded that there was a sleeper cell in Idaho and that Samuel Hussein was the ringleader. And a lot of the reason that they concluded this was that they had free reign to just look through all of his financial records and they were able to discover what kinds of contributions he was making to Muslim charities. Now, they worked very hard on whether he was contributing to any charity that had any link to any terrorism group. And one thing that I think a lot of people also aren't aware of is that when the war on terror in 2001 gave the government expanded powers, first of all, not, only, not all the powers are restricted to terrorism investigation. A lot of them are just new powers. Second of all, most of the powers involving terrorism investigations are not only about Al-Qaeda. They're about all sorts of other groups, Hamas, rebels in Chechnya, the Kurds in Turkey, the democracy group in um, Iran called the PMOI or the MEK. So you know, it, all sorts of different things. So when the government began to suspect Sami al-Hussein because of, on the basis of his contributions to charities, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you that's one of the pillars of Islam to give to charity. So you know, there's nothing inherently suspicious about making contributions. Um, at first they thought that he was supporting al-Qaeda, but that didn't pan out and their theory kept changing. Uh, then they thought he was supporting Hamas, then they thought he was supporting Chechnyan rebels, and it was just, it was something. So finally, by the time they got to trial, where their proof ended up, they had absolutely no proof that this man supported terrorism in any way. In fact, he had been leading candlelight vigils on campus after 9-11, protesting terrorism and trying to explain to the people in Idaho that Islam is not inherently a, you know, a jihadist religion, that it doesn't mean that you know, you're going to be a terrorist because you're a Muslim. So the chief proof that the government had at trial, the basis for the prosecution, was the fact that Sami was um, acting as a webmaster for an Islamic group on campus, the Islamic Assembly of North America. That group was not on any blacklists, surprisingly enough, you know, so many other Muslim groups were. 
But what he was doing for them, serving as webmaster, one of the things he was doing, because they were trying to promote a fuller understanding of Islam and what it was and wasn't, is he would post links to all sorts of different things, you know, moderate Islamists writing about their own point of view. And he also posted links to people explaining jihad from the jihadist point of view. Well, the theory of the government, they did have the theory for a while that there were links that you could link through to a place where you could contribute, but his defense attorney pointed out at trial that those links had been disabled before he actually started posting his own links. So what he was being tried for was to posting links, you know, by the time you got to trial, posting links to hateful speech, controversial speech, and you know, that was defined as material support of terrorism. Well, those of you who are lawyers are thinking, well, what about the First Amendment? Well, his defense attorney said, this bio prosecution violates the First Amendment. I move to dismiss the prosecution. And what he said ultimately to the jury was he said, if Samuel Hussein can't post links on a website saying, here's what a bunch of people think, see for yourself, then the New York Times could be prosecuted for posting, uh, publishing an editorial by a member of Hamas explaining what they're all about. And we can't have conversations hearing all different people's points of view. And that's a serious intrusion on the freedom of speech, the freedom of thought, the freedom of association, the freedom of religion. The judge said motion denied opinion to follow, but no opinion ever followed because that opinion would have been really hard to write. So the sort of happy ending to the story, I have to tell you that this man spent 17 months in solitary confinement and his family was shipped back to Saudi Arabia in the middle of the trial. So he had to go through all this without his family. And so you know, it was serious derailment here. He was almost finished with his dissertation, but never got to finish. He's now back in Saudi Arabia, scratching his head, trying to reconcile his image of America as the land of the just with what happened to him. And the happy ending on the other side of that is that the jury of 12 Idaho citizens, including retired forest worker, you know, banker, a teacher, acquitted him. They got the First Amendment. They said, no, you, know, you can't prosecute somebody for something like this. Okay, so. First of all, what does this tell us? The material support laws, which were expanded by the Patriot Act, were broadened in all sorts of different ways. Uh, they allowed the prosecution of people for providing expert advice or assistance to any group that's considered a terrorist group designated by the government or to any individual who's believed by the government to be a terrorist. Expert advice or assistance, pretty vague phrase. Uh, some of you may recall there was a Supreme Court case a couple of years ago brought by a group called the Humanitarian Law Project. This is a group of people in California who were a peace group, and they were determined to help terrorists to see the error of their ways and to learn peaceful dispute resolution methods instead of using you know, violence. So they would try to train you know, Kurds in Turkey, for example, to use processes through the UN to address their you know, grievances against the Turkish government instead of using violence. Well, when they saw this expansion of language in the Patriot Act, it made them a little nervous because they wondered, well, could they be prosecuted for providing expert advice or assistance to terrorists? The whole theory of the Patriot Act and the material support laws is, let's make terrorist groups 100% retroactive. Nobody's allowed to talk to them. Nobody's allowed to come close to them. Well, when their case got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said, sure, the statute could apply to them. Yeah, expert advice or assistance. They're teaching the terrorists how, you know, how to use peaceful dispute resolution methods, and therefore, the terrorists won't have to spend their own resources figuring that out, and therefore, they're gonna have more money to spend on bombs. What about the First Amendment? Well, the Supreme Court said, well, yeah, okay, they wanna talk to terrorists, but whether or not they can depends what they wanna say. And you know, 
the prosecutor in this case, essentially, if a, somebody wanted to prosecute them for telling terrorists not to be terrorists, then a prosecutor could say, you know, you can't do that. You can't get close to terrorists, and, and the First Amendment has to step aside. Susan Herman is president of the American Civil Liberties Union. Read more about the abuses contained in the Patriot Act at our website, Cato.org.